Please open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18, verses 16 through 33. can be found in your pew Bible on page 25. Genesis chapter 18, verses 16 through 33. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin is so grievous, that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than fifty? Will you destroy the whole city because of the five people? If I find forty-five there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again he spoke to him. What if only forty are found there? He said, for the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. As for the reading of God's holy word, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. The writer Oscar Wilde once said, Art is utterly useless. Uh, Pay close attention. He didn't say worthless. He said useless. You see, Oscar Wilde was criticizing the utilitarian impulse of our world that measures worth based on usefulness or practicality. And because art was only beautiful, appealing, um, in that utilitarian culture, it was useless. Does it accomplish something? Does it get stuff done? 
While criticized, the world did not, did not see art as valuable because they did not see its usefulness. Um, and I think our modern world is not much different than Oscar Wilde's world. Art isn't practical. It doesn't give us tangible results. It rarely earns us anything. Could this be part of why prayer is difficult for our modern world? And do we find prayer useless because it's not useful? Maybe we've walked away from prayer and wondered, was that really a good use of my time? I mean, could I have gotten something done instead of praying? Did my prayers really accomplish anything? And I think even in our reform circles, this can go to a deeper concern, a theological concern. Well, God is sovereign. If God wants to do something, he's going to do it. If he doesn't want to do something, he's not going to do it. And I don't see how my little, tiny, puny, little creaturely prayers are really going to amount to anything. Well, you see, the Bible actually challenges us on our utilitarianism. The idea that if something is not useful, it's useless when it comes to the concept of prayer. And the Bible actually challenges what can often happen in Reformed communities, our overemphasis on God's sovereignty and our underemphasis upon our responsibility. And a great example of that is Genesis chapter 18, verse 16 through 33. If you understand that what is going on here is Abraham speaking, approaching God and speaking to him, then what you see before us um, is the prayer of a righteous man. The prayer of a righteous man. And in James chapter 5, we are told that the prayers of a righteous person in the old King James, because I like it so much, availeth much. In the NIV, it says the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. And the example given there is of Elijah the prophet, who is a man just like us. And Elijah said there's not going to be any rank coming until I pray for rain to come. And when he prayed, rain came. Well, Abraham here is a righteous man because the faith which he put in God, God credited to him as righteousness. And Abraham here is a model for us of what we often call intercessory prayer, and prayer on behalf of another person. We've got two points this morning. Our theme is the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. Uh, the first point that we have is uh, revealed for instruction. In verses 16 through 22, um, there's this um, very interesting conversation that God has with the angels that are with him about whether he should let Abraham in on the business, what's going on. And there's a lot there that we can learn. 
Um, and then a second, of course, point is intercessory prayer, verses 23 through 33, where we see that bartering exchange between Abraham and God. So let's start with point number one, revealed for instruction. In verse 16, we're told that following that covenant meal, that fellowship meal that God and these two angels had with Abraham, Abraham who played the part of the, uh, the perfect ancient Near Eastern host, the one who showed hospitality in abundance, and, and that uh, renewal of God's promise to Abraham that Sarah was going to have a son, Sarah's lack of belief in that, and God saying, is, is anything too wonderful for God? Um, after Sarah laughs and God says, well, yeah, you don't need to lie to me. Yeah, you did laugh. This is what happens next. And it, it's a pivot point in the text because it, it tells us um, the direction that we're going in. The, the second part of the reason why God came in this theophany uh, was not just to come and to eat a meal with Abraham and to remind Abraham that this time next year Sarah would have a son, um, but there was also another reason for, for God's visit. And that's why we read in verse 16, when the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom. That gives you the idea of the direction that this is, is going in. And Abraham, he walked along with them to see them on their way. And then the Lord, as they're walking along their way, has this exchange with these two angels who are with him. Um, and it's sort of like one of those exchanges where, you know, you talk about somebody in front of somebody, knowing that they can hear, um, uh, but, but you want them to hear this, this exchange. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him, for I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Revealed for instruction. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means a number of things. Uh, the first thing it means is that uh, Abraham is a friend of God. In James chapter 2, we're told that very thing. Abraham was called a friend of God. And God here is saying, um, I'm going to reveal what I'm going to do to Sodom, to Abraham, because Abraham is my friend. Uh, the Psalms speak of the one who fears the Lord is, is the one that God reveals his covenant to. Uh, the covenant knowledge of God's intentions, God's plannings in this world, they're revealed to those whom love God, whom God loves, his friends. And Abraham here, we're being told, is a friend of God because Abraham is going to be privy to the revelation of God, to what God is doing in this world. And all you got to do is look at a number of examples. Um, even before Abraham, Noah. Noah is declared to be a righteous man. And God comes to Noah and God says, listen, I'm going to bring a flood upon this entire world, destroy it entirely, but I'm, I'm making you privy to this knowledge because I'm going to save you. You need to build an ark for you and for your family. So Noah is privy to the revelation of God. No one knows uh, what God is planning with this world, what God intends to do. Um, and it is through that revelation that these people often escape judgment. We are reminded also of this 
uh, correlation with the prophets. Jeremiah is the one who God reveals that there's going to be a judgment coming. Jerusalem will be destroyed. My people, though, they will be exiles for 70 years. Daniel is the one who is told that there is going to be a kingdom coming greater than the Babylonian kingdom, greater than the Assyrian kingdom, greater than the Greek kingdom, greater than the Roman kingdom, and it's going to come like a stone, and it's going to grow into a mountain, and that kingdom shall have no end, no, no end of their dominion, no end of their rulership, and that kingdom is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Daniel is the one whom this is revealed to. And then when Jesus Christ comes, when, when the Lord, our Savior, comes, he says one of the most marvelous things in all of Scripture. I'm telling you, you've got to get that into your mind. You've got to remember this. John chapter 15, verse 15. Jesus says to his disciples, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. See, there is one sense in which God has given a revelation to all. Romans 1 speaks of this, that there is no excuse because God is known to all through his general revelation. But there is a sense in which God, by his spirit, makes those whom he chooses to be those who see, who grasp, who believe his special revelation. And this is what I want you to know this morning. If you are a believer in what the scriptures proclaim, if you are a believer um, in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, if you believe in him, your sins were forgiven and you received the perfect righteousness. If you are a believer that Jesus, yes, has risen to be seated at the right hand of God, but he is coming again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom shall have no end. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. We're going to receive resurrection bodies. If you are a believer in those things, if you know those things to be true, if you cling to those things as promises given to you by God, you are a friend of God. You're privy to the revelation of God's intentions in creation. You're privy to the master's business, to the coming judgment, to the coming redemption. You're a friend of God, just as Abraham here is described for us as a friend of God. God says, this is one of the reasons why I am letting Abraham into this knowledge of what I'm seeking to do to Sodom and Gomorrah. But there's another one. Verse 19, we are told, For I have chosen him, Abraham, so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. One of the reasons why God is revealing what he is going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah as a judgment is so that Abraham could instruct his family, 
his children, those of his household. And God is saying, I want you to see, Abraham, that there is a path of blessing. And it's one I've given to you and the promises I've given to you and the covenant I've given to you. That is the path of blessing. But also, Abraham, I want you to see. I want you to see what happens when people choose the path of cursing, of wickedness, of evil. And Abraham, you're about to be a witness to this. So that you can take this knowledge, Abraham. You can take what it is that you have seen, what it is that you've been told. And you can, well, I'll just give you a a quick demonstration. You can do this. Deuteronomy chapter 6. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Abraham is a friend of God. Abraham is one who was privy to the revelation of God, to the knowledge of God. And Abraham is one who is privy to these things. He's privileged to know these things so that he may teach the generation to come, teach the children and his children and his children's children. Is that something that we still believe in today? That there is a need to carry on the instruction of the Lord and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ to our children and our children's children and our children's children's children. I was told one time that uh, somebody came across a deserted island and they found on that deserted island a Dutchman alone, by himself. And he said, what are these four buildings on this Dutch island, this island with this one Dutch man on it? And the Dutch man said, well, that building is my house, and that building is the Christian school, that building is my church, and that building is the church I used to go to. I say that because One of the strong convictions that we have had in our tradition and our conviction that we have had in our our, uh, uh, faith has been the importance of Christian education, the importance of teaching our children 
And right here we're being told that Abraham, Abraham is being allowed to see what God is doing so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Abraham is privileged to be a recipient of the revelation of God, not only in the promises God has given to him, but also the judgment he is going to bring on Sodom and Gomorrah so that he can instruct his family. And we read, continuing, the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Here is almost a turning point. Now the Lord is speaking straight to Abraham. And he's revealing to Abraham what it is that the, the Lord has come to do. Um, he has come to see if the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great. Uh, the question we have to ask ourselves is, does the Lord really need to come down to visit a city to see if its sin is grievous and great? Does the Lord really need to see uh, what, if, if, what if they've done is as bad as the outcry that has reached him? Well, I'm, what I'm hearing from heaven is things are pretty bad, but I need to check in on it. No, what we're being told here is that God is an omniscient God. God is one who knows all things, and God is going to give justice the way that justice is meant to be done. The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, their sin is so grievous. And what you're going to see is that Abraham, in very many ways, functions as a comparison, a contrast with Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham is the hospitable host. Uh, those in Sodom are those who are not hospitable. They are those who oppress the poor. Abraham is one who gives to the poor. They are ones who have been distorted by their sexual desires that have become so twisted and wrong um, that um, the judgment is coming. And, um, and so Abraham functions as a, as a comparison with uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. He has the good, they as the bad. God does not need to go down and see if what they've done is as bad as the outcry that has reached him. God knows the outcry has reached him. He knows their sin has reached its full. They are worthy of judgment. They are going to receive judgment because God is just. But what about this intercessory prayer? Our second point this morning. Much of this chapter, this portion of this chapter is about this. That the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. Um, much of this chapter challenges our perceived notions and ideas and concepts about prayer. And its usefulness. And how it functions with the sovereignty of God. Verse 22, we read, the men turned away and went towards Sodom. 
but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. If you look at the footnote, it says, uh, many of the, the uh, texts say, but the Lord remained standing before Abraham. Uh, the reason why that was changed most likely is because to stand before someone is to give honor to them. So it seemed bizarre for translators that they would read that the Lord stood before Abraham, but you've got to remember, Abraham's a friend of God, so um, either way is fine. The translation is fine. Um, but, but one other thing that you could see from this um, is that Abraham is there standing before the Lord, and he approaches him. Verse 23, Abraham approached him and said, that approaching is, uh, is a key to us, that we are now entering into prayer. We are now entering into the approaching to God, to the throne of God, to the uh, throne room of God, the God of all justice and glory, the God who created the heavens and the earth. There's an approaching happening here that's uh, in reverence, but coming to God, seeking from him um, what we are going to ask of him. And that's what Abraham is doing here. Um, intercessory prayer is prayer on behalf of another Abraham has just been told that Sodom and Gomorrah are going to be destroyed because of their grievous sin. The outcry that has reached God, uh, they are going to receive judgment. And Abraham, in prayer, says to God, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And what you see here, this interaction between Abraham and, and the Lord in prayer is much like what you would see today in ancient Near Eastern culture at a marketplace, bartering for over prices. Or if you'd like to still experience that today, you could go and you could uh, buy a car at a, from a car salesman. No, I don't want to spend that much. I'm willing to spend this much. I'm willing to spend this much. You know, go, you go down. You go, you know, you start really low and you work yourself up. It's a bartering. It's a prayer. And Abraham does this. He says, we sweep away the city for, for the 50 righteous that are in it. And he asks a rhetorical question. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And the question is, is, is an easy answer. Yes, he will. And the Lord says, if I find 50 righteous people in the city, I'll spare the whole place. Abraham, 45? If I find 45, I'll spare the city. 30? If I find 30, I will spare the city. 20? Can you give me 20? If I find 20, I will spare the city. Lord, Lord, I know I'm only dust, and I know, I know I've spoken to you. 10? If I find 10, I will spare the city. This, um, this intercessory prayer that Abraham displays for us teaches us a number of things. 
It teaches us uh, that we should not be afraid to approach God. Um, in fact, we are instructed in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, that we should have confidence in approaching the throne of grace because of the blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Um, do you have confidence in approaching the throne of grace? Um, do you come to the Lord with the knowledge that the Heidelberg Catechism says to us that God has more desire to answer our prayers than we really have to ask Him what we want? Do you believe that? Do you know that? Another thing that this intercessory prayer that Abraham has with God that challenges us is challenges us to consider praying, praying for the city. Even if it's a city that we think is lost, it is so wicked, it is so corrupt. Part of the reason why in our morning prayer this morning, congregational prayer, uh, I chose to pray for the city of Chicago. Uh, this is a perfect example in our very own backyards of the way that we could be expressing the intercessory prayer that Abraham has, praying for the city of Chicago, one which we are so intimately connected to, interceding for it even though it is filled with so much wickedness and corruption. One of the things that it challenges us to do, this intercessory prayer that, that Abraham has with God, it challenges us to pray for the lost. It challenges us to pray for those who do not know God. Here is Abraham standing on the hillside looking down at Sodom and Gomorrah. And you know what? He could have had this attitude. He could have had this attitude that said, Well, good riddance. That city deserves to burn. Out with it. Go on, Lord, bring the fire, bring the brimstone, bring the judgment. We've got to ask ourselves, is that our attitude sometimes? Are we like the sons of thunder? Or are we like Abraham? We look down upon a city full of destruction. Prayed for it. And for the lost within it. And for those who were within that city who cried out to God because of the injustices that they were experiencing and suffering. But there's another thing happening here in this intercessory prayer uh, that challenges us to do, and it it's challenges us to pray for our family. Now, you do remember that we were told earlier in Genesis that Lot looked out upon all the land, and he decided to settle. 
next to Sodom. And we all thought to ourselves in that moment, that's probably not a good idea. Well, guess what? Lot found out it wasn't a good idea because eventually he decided to move into the city. And he became a prominent person within the city of Sodom. And then some kings came along and took over that city, destroyed it, killing so many people and carrying others off as prisoners, including Lot and his family. And Abraham, in his kindness and his mercy, went after those uh, kings that had uh, uh, raided Sodom. And he brought back Lot and his family. And you know what Lot decided to do? He says, you know what, I'm going to move right back into Sodom. So here, here we have Abraham praying for Sodom, not just because he's praying for the city, not just because he's praying for the lost, but he's praying because he knows his family, who used to be in that covenant community, but had separated themselves from it, is there in that city, and they don't know that judgment is coming. And so Abraham is bartering with the Lord and very likely could be bartering because he's asking for the life of his family, Lot, and his family. And uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, we're told important information about Lot. He's not a perfect guy. I mean, who is? Um, But we do read this, verses 4 through 10. God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, For that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. Are you praying for your family? Are you praying for those in your family who were once a part of the covenant community but have since gone away. Um, Abraham's intercessory prayer here um, is an example to you to not stop praying, interceding for them. There's a parable that many think is quite odd that Jesus teaches in Luke chapter 18 called the parable of the persistent widow. The parable of the persistent widow is is interesting because um, this is what Jesus does. He likes to shock people with his parables. He likes to make them think. Jesus says there's this widow, and uh, she needs something from this judge. And this judge, he's a wicked man. But the widow, she keeps knocking on his door. She keeps sending emails to him. She keeps sending letters in the mail. She keeps leaving voicemails. The widow keeps persistently asking from this judge what it is that she needs from him. And this judge finally says, listen, I'm not a good person. I don't give 
any care about what this widow wants, but just so she'll stop bothering me, I'm going to give her what she wants. And then Jesus says, this is what prayer's like. You should be saying, is God the wicked judge who's simply annoyed by us, so eventually gives us what we want? Do you think that's what prayer is? When you read Genesis chapter 18 and you hear Abraham going 50, 45, 30, 20, 10, do you think that's what prayer is like? That God finally gets annoyed with you enough, he just gives you what you want so you'll stop asking? Sometimes I think in my interactions with my kids, I give them the wrong idea about what prayer is because I often do that. No. This is what Jesus means by the parable of the persistent widow. If the wicked judge who doesn't care at all about what the persistent widow wants gives her what she wants because she won't stop asking, imagine what the Lord will give you when he is a good judge, a perfect judge, and a loving father. question we have to ask ourselves is, in closing, is Abraham's prayer useless? Does God answer his prayer? This passage ends in a very bizarre way, almost on a cliffhanger, almost suddenly, abruptly. You go through that whole bartering process, 50, 45, 30, 20, 10, and the Lord says, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And then verse 33, when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. Is the Lord going to save the city? Are there ten righteous in that city? No. There is no unrighteous. Not one. But this prayer does remind us that God finds no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God is not a God who's sitting, looking down at Sodom and Gomorrah and going like this with glee because he finally gets to destroy it and bring fire upon it. The Bible tells us that when one sinner repents, The angels rejoice in heaven and there is music for days. And the Bible tells us when the wicked perish, silence. There is no pleasure in the death of the wicked for the Lord, but it does not mean that Abraham's prayer is useless. You must understand that the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. You must understand that there are things that God wants to do in this world, and he's waiting on you to pray for them. Do you understand that? God is sovereign. 
God shall accomplish his will. But the wonder and the mystery and the glory is that he chooses us to accomplish his will. He uses us to bring about what it is that he has ordained to happen in this world. Do you understand that if we all began to pray for the city of Chicago, for our nation, for our families, that things would change, God would move? This chapter challenges our view on prayer what it accomplishes, what its purpose is, what its intention is. And I pray that through this you would know that our prayers, not because somehow we're better than others, but because Jesus Christ has died on the cross, because he's been raised from the grave, because he's ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father, because he's poured out his spirit upon us, do you understand that what we pray for in his name, in accordance with his will, is powerful and effective? Does that mean that we always get what we pray for? No, because sometimes we pray wrongly. Sometimes God says no to our prayers because he knows it's better for us. Sometimes we ask for Egypt and he gives us wilderness. Sometimes we ask for Lamborghinis and he breaks our legs to teach us something. But God, God is an answer of prayers. God is the judge of all the earth. He will do what is right. God, God is our friend. Go to him. Yes, in reverence like Abraham does. But speak to him face to face. And ask him to work in your life, in your family, in the lives of the lost, in your community, in your city, in the world. Through Jesus Christ. Amen. We pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you, you have been made our friend. Through Jesus Christ, those who were once enemies, now friends. Those who were once aliens, now adopted children of God. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would work in us by your Spirit to bring us to pray. You would, Lord, help us to cherish your revelation and to share it, teach it to those we love, to our family, to our children, to our friends. And we pray, Lord, that you would draw us into intercessory prayer on behalf of others. May we know, Lord, May we know that you hear, you listen, and that you work through our prayers.
We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.